Hello and welcome to another episode. I'm Mike and I'm here as always with Max. How are you, Max? Hi, Mike. It's always so uh, exciting to kind of press the record button and hear the little voice uh, getting started, no? Yeah, I wouldn't call my voice little voice, but I'll, I'll forgive you. No, I didn't mean. I mean, I didn't mean your voice. I mean, I meant that. Uh, did you? Do you even hear it? Like, there's a Zoom voice which kind of makes a sound as soon as it starts. Oh, okay. I, I thought you were talking about my voice. No, yeah. like definitely, definitely excited. And we have a couple of nice topics for today. And um, just to foreshadow a little bit, we'll talk about a new version of like looking at product market fit in a bit of a different way. We we'll talk uh, on a higher level about Web three because everyone's talking about it and. Max and I have like some experience uh, in in that field as well, and we we will talk about it high level today, and then dive much deeper in it in one of our next episodes, and then we have a couple of cool news for you, and as always, uh, content recommendations. But without further ado, Max, what am I talking about when I say that there's a different way of looking at product market fit? Yeah, um, thanks, Mike. Yeah, generally, I thought of kind of talking about this a bit. I um, read a newsletter which I kind of subscribe to from first round, uh, which is also a venture capital fund in the US. Um, but basically, um, they have written about finding language market fit, which I found quite interesting. Uh, and basically, what it talks about is that oftentimes as a startup, when you have a new product or generally new products, and you want to launch them, you want to try to understand what the language is of the customers that you kind of have in mind, or that kind of are the ideal target personas that you want to target. But oftentimes, you you play around with kind of different wordings and, and you try to catch the attention of um, your buyer persona or your target persona in general, and you miss it um, a lot of times because you don't know exactly what they look for. You don't know exactly what they search for on the internet. And um, first round talked about um, the idea of finding a language market fit, which basically means that you understand your customers' goals and struggles. And, and of course, everything that is also related to anxieties, fears that they have. And you really try to understand how does all that mapped to a language that you define to catch the target persona's attention. And of course, this sounds very abstract and simplistic in, in, in its sense, but basically what it means is that you can imagine a person is kind of in a meeting room. For example, if you tar target kind of B2B customers, they sit in a meeting room, they have a discussion going on. They are kind of they have a problem that they want to look look. They want to look a solution to like they want to find a solution that solves a problem, and they're gonna type something certain. On, on Google, or they're going to have some ads that are displayed on, on LinkedIn, and you want to find the right language to catch them in that specific moment. And there's a differentiation between goal-directed attention, which is basically when people are in need to find something specific, they, are, they have something in mind that they want to achieve with kind of a potential solution that solves their problem. And they kind of use Google searches or other ways of finding that specific product. And then you have stimulus-driven attention, which basically is bottom-up where people are basically just scrolling Instagram and they they get caught by certain ads on Instagram and they click on them. And it doesn't really potentially fit to their current needs, but it's another way of getting the attention of the user. And I found that very interesting because I see a lot of startups, they try to understand how do I position our like the product? How do I actually find the right target group? And how do I catch their attention? And I wanted to kind of talk to you a bit about this and kind of see how you have approached this also at Blair. And then I can talk about how what I've seen kind of working with different products and also listening to different product teams on how they potentially try to define their language um, language market fit, which is definitely a new term that I've never had, like never heard before. 
Have you heard it before? Is that something that kind of comes to your mind from a concept perspective or just like, of course, tactically you do that at the company? I mean, never heard the specific term before, quite mm -hmm. honestly. I, I think it's something that you think about, right? It's yep. at the core of marketing, trying yes. to figure out not only what your customers want, but how you can communicate it to them. And honestly, it's one of the most difficult things, especially if you are working with a product that's new, because then people don't have the, the reference point that you need. So using the technical term for it, in our case, for example, outcome-based financing or income share agreements makes it difficult because if people don't know what that is, you're already losing them. Mm -hmm. right? They could like just think about what the name implies and then if they think about it, maybe they have a hunch of what it means, but that doesn't really help them to understand it. So I think when you talk to especially non-sophisticated customers, and by that I don't mean that they don't that they're not smart or anything i mean that they don't understand the specific niche you're in you need to be very careful that you're not using too much jargon and that you need to find out find out like what they want to hear but then also how to explain your product in ways that they understand it and that's that's again i think we talked about that like every stakeholder often requires different communication and different wording When I talk to equity investors, I explain the product differently compared to when I talk to debt investors. And then also, again, differently when I talk to schools or students. And it's not that I am using different facts. I use the same facts. I just construe them in different way and communicate them in different way. I think that's, that's basically what it comes down to. And I totally agree that it's a big part of product market fit. Because mm. if you if you have a good product and a like potential market that's also really good, doesn't really help you if your customers don't understand what the product is, because then they won't give it a, a second glance and will never use it. I agree. I mean, you talked about one specific point, right? I mean, which is like you can have the greatest product ever, but if your distribution sucks, uh, it can it, it it's not going to bring you anywhere, right? And I think like the The distribution part is something that go that there's that that usually is very tactical. For in the product world, you have different measurements on kind of how you initially like measure retention and kind of all different things, right? But if you look at like the distribution part, besides uh, measuring kind of a a funnel and and of course conversion rates and all that kind of stuff, understanding what your customers are interested in in terms of language and what they kind of are looking for in that specific moment, that's I think very 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 difficult. And I talked about this with a friend of mine. And and he had a very interesting kind of discussion. He comes from a compliance background and he said, there's like this time frame of like a few days where a potential customer is actually searching for your solution. And if you're not coming up on that specific list or on, on the Google search in, in kind of at least the, the few first results, you're not going to win that customer if they have like a few days where they're going to discover a few kind of potential products and you're not part of their search or part of their attention, then you, you you not even have a chance to let them enter your funnel. And I think that's kind of the initial idea where you really have to understand the, the, the customer's point of view and really understand what are they actually looking for when they try to like find your solution. And I think like for your point, from your point of view, it's very interesting actually, because you have a quite a technical term for what you guys do at Blair. Um, 
but you somehow need to convert it to the specific target group, right? Even students. I mean, I, I'm not even sure if a student would know what an income share agreement is. I don't think the normal student that's looking for money, that's the first thing they're going to they're gonna search, right? They're going to search like, hey, how can I finance my, my, my studies? And like converting that into um, kind of the, the, the value proposition of Blair is probably something that you guys have worked on for a bit, no? Yeah, 100%. And maybe we can also give a couple of examples from the actual text that illustrated well. Yep. And also, it's why the so-called one-liner that we always talk about when it comes to describing startups is just so important. And this is also why YC puts a lot of effort into actually teaching you how to create a good one-liner, mm -hmm. because it can make such a big difference how your startup is perceived by customers, by investors, by everyone. So maybe I'll just go through like one or two of the examples. Yeah, please. Um, so... Basically, here in the in the example from first round, they have a couple of examples, like the old phrasing, the new phrasing, and they say how much it actually impacted the conversion. And uh, one of them is from a company called Matchpint. The old phrasing was make the most of sports in your pub, increase footfall, and save time with Matchpint. And the next one is get more sports fans in your pub. More often, reach 2.1 million people looking for a pub showing sport nearby. And yeah, what's what's the difference, right? The, I think one of the biggest differences is that the second one is just more direct, more tangible, and just makes clear what the product actually does. Because make the most of sport in your pub is super generic, right? Sounds cool. Something they can, sorry? <laughs> sounds cool. <laughs> it sounds cool, but it doesn't really, like the pub owner doesn't care, right? The pub no, owner right. wants... When it's like more people in the pub. So the second one, get more sports fans in your pub more often. It's just so much more direct, right? So it's it's tangible. And then the other uh, the other example here is like well, one of the other examples is the old phrasing is fast, easy photo books. And the new phrasing is photo books in five minutes. And the lift was 4x here. And again, I think one of the good things, and that's often something that at least I've seen as a almost general rule if you're more specific and if you can like quantify it a little bit or if you just touch what's really important then that really helps and photo box in five minutes sounds like way more like direct and not as like generic as fast easy photo books mm -hmm. yeah I, I agree i mean the interesting part is they even add like some quantitative quantitative values right to make it even more approachable maybe like photo books in five minutes makes it quite understandable that it just doesn't take a long time and the matchpint idea here get more sports fans uh in your pub more often reach 2.1 million people looking for a pub showing sport nearby i think that's also very interesting that they directly quantify uh their phrasing with a specific number to make it even more obvious on kind of what they actually offering um and that's, I think, the, the interesting part, right? Because oftentimes, and I've made that mistake before as well here, when you look at the examples, I remember kind of in the first company that that we've built where we had our few, like our first product launched, one of the mistakes was you look at the examples of like Uber and Google and others that basically, um, that have that that have a, a very like cool headline and you, you, you obviously think, okay, that's something that we should do then, like be as Uber, be as Google and think about what's the most fanciest headline you can use. 
but I think there's been like studies where you, they have analyzed how the headline and the tagline has changed of these companies over the last kind of like years. And you can see that when they started out, it was just very obvious. You could immediately see what their product is offering. And over time, when their brand got bigger, um, their headline has also changed. And that's something that I think you can still change the headline later on if you have a clear brand. But if you don't have that, you need to make it very obvious for your customer what you actually build. <laughs> Yeah, definitely. Like um, Google didn't always have like "Don't be evil" <laughs> or um, like Uber. I think Uber's first or one of the first ones that really worked was push a button, get a ride, and that's very, very direct. Right? It's very clear. The value prop is super clear. I don't even know what the current one is, but probably transport like the world and move everything. Yeah. I don't know. Like probably yeah. something like that. I don't. I don't even know off the top of my head. <laughs> but yeah, because right now it doesn't apply anymore, right? Uber doesn't only, it's not anymore push a button, get a ride. It's also order food and, and you can do so many more things with it. So it just changes over time. Do you, you think can also, like, go ahead. Like, do you think actually, because you mentioned something interesting, right? I mean, it's somehow also related to kind of the vision. Do you think that kind of the, 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 the kind of the language market fit also potentially changes later the, the or like not even changes but like initiates a different view on the vision that a company has it, yeah it might right i mean over time definitely like things change so the language has to change and at some point for example google doesn't need to say like we are a search engine <laughs> we are the best search engine right that's just not what google has to do right now in the current position they might have like they might needed it in the beginning, but that's that's not what they, their market position um they, they don't need to do that right now. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. yeah. Um, but by the way, I, I like the last example here. I really really like that because it's it's I think a really good one. It's from Peer Medical. The old phrasing mm -hmm. was lung cancer treatment data personalized for you, and the new one is this is hope. This tool shows me other lung cancer treatments in case my current drugs stop working. Again. So, like, so much more direct. The value is so apparent because lung cancer treatment data personalized for you. I mean, that sounds interesting, but what does it actually mean? And the second one, just like really directly with a bit of like additional the like theater, right? This is hope. <laughs> but other than that, it's just like it's very direct. I think that's that's pretty cool. Yeah, and and I think what you can see here is actually. Um, coming back to what what we initially talked about you want to understand the kind of the needs and 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 the fears of your customer and with the kind of medical lung cancer treatment thing it's more related to a fear that a, a customer has and of course you want to you want to help them uh, not having that fear kind of whereas if you think about the the, the pup uh, product um, the the match pin product here then it's much more about the need that they have they want to have much more people uh, in their pub more often and that's like a bit i think like first of all it probably makes sense to think about okay is your customer more related to a, spe a specific need that they have or are they fearful of something that they can't achieve or something that might happen to their health or whatever that you can where you can help them through through the product that you built and i think that's something that that you can also see here with the three examples that you probably need to differentiate on what your kind of target group, whether it's more related to needs or pain points or or fears, anxieties, whatever it is at the end. Yeah, 100%. Just, okay, just want to move to the next one? 
Or do you have something? Yeah, some just, closing thoughts? just closing thoughts, right? I mean, and of course we can share this in the show notes, but I think they kind of first round gives a couple of great, um, great ideas on how you can find your language. Um, and it's basically a four-step process, but I would advise just everybody to check it out. It's basically you need to uncover the the struggles or the hidden assumptions that you have through kind of interviewing. Um, potentially, you can even interview signups or your first customers, users. You want to draft some test messages based on the interview transcript. So you want to understand what are the pain points and how can you convert these pain points into a language that resonates with your customer. And then, of course, you want to do some more qualitative and quantitative testing. Um, and if everybody kind of, if somebody's interested, like feel free to read through it. We're gonna link it in the show notes. It's very interesting, and they give you a step-by-step -step approach on how you can solve it. Nice. Uh, I, I'll do a short interlude with uh, some news that I read and that I wanted to talk about, and then we can jump to the next one. So, not sure if you read this already, but apparently. N26 is closing down operations in the US. Yep, I read it. Crazy. Uh, which is interesting. Like, I, I wouldn't necessarily have expected that. But, like, do, do you have any thoughts on that? Whew. I mean, it's interesting. I don't really know the market that well, to be honest. Um, but I, I see this more and more often, to be honest. I feel like um, I, I talked to a guy a couple of uh, weeks ago. Um, and he has like a billion dollar company and um, he talked about there are a lot of companies that go to the US and they have they basically fly private jet to the US and they come back with kind of a, a low price uh, airline. Um, and that's kind of <laughs> what you see quite a lot. I'm not sure if that's like if there's actual like studies behind this, but I, I see that more and more companies are going to the US. It's a completely different market very difficult and then they come back at some point in time but i think what you could see is that the competition level on in the us regarding kind of digital banks is just much much higher right you don't have just like revolut and n26 and a couple of small providers like you have in in europe but you have much much more that are fighting for the right for the same target group um and then i think actually coming back to the language market fit thing the language that like customers and users have in the us is also much different and i think um I would be very interested, very interested to kind of look a bit deeper into kind of seeing how they, how N26 positioned themselves in the US versus competitors versus kind of how they positioned themselves in Europe. Um, so I think that's a couple of open questions. Maybe you have some more insights. What's, what's your take on that? Yeah, I think banking is just hyper complex, right? It's, it's one of these products where regulation plays such a big role that going into new markets is way more difficult than it is for many, many others. So I think that's probably part of it. And then apparently they just want to like double down and focus on their core market. At least that's the reasoning. I mean, they also pulled out of the UK like in 2020, I think, right? Yeah. But back then they just cited that because of Brexit, it, it would just be super difficult for them to operate there. And Honestly, my thought about why N26 and some of the other challenger banks were getting like super high evaluations and all of that kind of stuff was that I thought that they had a big chance of also like winning the US market. Because like in terms of challenger banks, the US isn't as far ahead of Europe as they are in many other areas, right? So Revolut and N26 are just like really, really like strong companies. And I would have thought that they would get a significant foothold in the US. So I was like a bit surprised by that. 
I definitely see how just like the best challenger bank in Europe could be a really, really, really valuable company, right? Like an insanely valuable company. If you look at how many like big banks there are in Europe right now. But then on the other hand, I just think that the US is for Western companies just such a crucial market that it will be very difficult to significantly increase like the value over time if you don't also enter and or win the US. So that's my, my current like thought process. I mean that doesn't like just pulling out now doesn't mean that they will never like, come back to the US. But yeah, I'm I'm still I'm still fairly surprised because I I think they didn't have like super high numbers in the US, but it also wasn't super bad. Yeah, it's a good point though because I I, I would I, I don't think I would completely disagree. I mean, like of course, as a as from a from a European point of view, you you have some aspirations to win the U.S. market as well, but you also see a lot of kind of U.S. companies struggling in in Europe because of the diversity of cultures and and, and languages. But I just looked it up actually because I was very interested. Um, you can see that over 370 million Europeans can hold a conversation in English, and that would be something that I would be very interested in. in how that might change also the dynamics within kind of startups to focus either on the European market um, or not. Because I think like 15, 20 years ago, this was a bit of a different dynamic, I think, where like not every student in a European country um, would speak perfect English, right? And nowadays, like go to the Netherlands, go to like the Nordics, uh, go to Germany, go to Poland. People speak like very good English compared to how that was like 20 years ago. And of course, when, when you have a sufficient level of English speaking people in a specific continent, you have much more access to new users that you might have not had like 15, 20 years ago. And that, that's my, maybe also something that I think will change. And of course, you, you always believe I'm kind of the, the, the youth like supporter, but I, I, I'm not. I, I think like rationally, the market in the EU, EU gets also normalized by the fact that more people can speak English and it's not going to be as difficult anymore to win new users in Europe um, that actually speak English. And I think that already opens up the market immensely. If you believe now 370 million Europeans can hold a conversation in English, like how many kind of people live in the US, right? And maybe you can even win the European market as a as a big provider. Maybe that was also a more strategic decision. Then. Got it. Okay. So, yeah. That makes that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, yeah, let's let's see how it develops, right? But uh, I don't know about you, but uh, as I mentioned twice already, I, I was surprised. I'll like we'll take a closer look once we get more information, but for now, uh, just like interesting development. Are you an N26 user or you cannot disclose? Uh, I can't disclose that. <laughs> okay. Yeah, By the way, like a, a very interesting thing that literally just happened um, because I, I was just pinged twice on it. Um, do you know GoDaddy? Uh, yeah, sure. Uh, GoDaddy apparently was hacked in September. And they just noticed, like a couple of hours ago. And yeah. apparently, 1.2 million of like the customers' emails and customer numbers were leaked. And then for a subset of those, also the passwords were used and the like private like so like lots of shit going on right now. And uh, if you have a GoDaddy account, you should look into your GoDaddy account and hopefully you're not reusing the same password anywhere else. Um, if you do, like check and change your passwords uh, very quickly. Thanks for, for the update. Luckily, I'm not a GoDaddy user. This I can uh, disclose. 
I, I am a GoDaddy user, which I can also <laughs> disclose. But uh, like after after we end this podcast, I have to like look through my uh, password manager and like figure out what the what the status quo is. Yeah, their their, their share has definitely dropped um, quite quite immensely from like seventy three US dollars to sixty eight, and of course. With the amount of shares they have, it's going to definitely make a good impact. <laughs> yeah, uh, I, I I think that I probably have like my my password manager like password in there, so I shouldn't be too worried about it. But I'll I'll confirm afterwards. Awesome, perfect. But yeah, breaking news on here, which you will probably not hear like until like a week after it happened. But um, <laughs> it's breaking it's breaking news for us, so you get the live <laughs> the live reactions from us. <laughs> Maybe uh, we, should, okay. we should we should do some live podcasting at some point in time. That's oh, that's good. actually good. Yeah, people can just drop in like comments or like news, and then we can just live react to it. Yes, absolutely. Uh, do you want to talk about the Web three point zero craze that's going on? Back in the day, we called it crypto. Now it's Web three. <laughs> How? Hey, uh, what, what do you what do you think about it? Yeah, it's quite interesting, right? I mean, I feel like um, Tim Ferriss pointed this out, uh, point, yeah, pointed this out quite nicely a couple of days ago in a in a podcast with Naval and uh, Chris uh, Chris Dixon, I think is his name, um, and because he talked about like all his peer groups are basically talking about this Web three world, but there are still lots and lots and lots and lots of people that don't have any clue what this is about. Um, so I basically kind of. Uh, reserved some time in the last couple of weeks to dig a bit deeper. And I'm quite amazed because at the beginning I was like, okay, like crypto, yes, of course I see it. Um, this has been there for quite a long time. And then I wanted to better understand, okay, what has actually been the transition from web, kind of web 1.2, uh, 1.0, kind of 2.0, and now like web three, like what what are the differences? And I'm still trying to figure it out, of course, in, in, in many different details, but I think I got a good grasp um, just kind of understanding how we transition from read-only content in, in the Web 1 world to um, kind of content becoming more interactive in the Web 2 world with like social networks and systems such as Uber and other ones uh, that basically made this whole internet a completely revolutionized system. And now Web 3, which is much more about trust and owning things. And yeah, I'm quite amazed by that, but I wonder kind of, how are you seeing it? I know that you have been quite active in it as well. Just, um, I think, like for me, just the, the the ownership part is quite interesting, and what that can mean for creators, owners of properties or um, businesses in general. Um, of course, we can dig a bit deeper, but like, would love to hear like two cents, like from a maybe high level perspective, what what you are thinking and what it means to you personally, also maybe. Yeah, I've been really long on crypto for like quite some time. I've always been super interested in the theory behind it. I was sending around the Bitcoin white paper when I was still in high school in 2013. And I also wrote my college thesis partly about blockchain a couple of years ago and specifically about like smart contracts and the intersection of smart contracts and AI and how that could be changing the internet as we know it. So it also went to a couple of like blockchain conferences, like starting in like 2016, I think. So yeah, I've always been like very interested in the topic. Like the last two years, roughly, I was super busy with just building my company. So I didn't really follow along with everything. But I've recently gotten back into it because there is a a DAO, and we can we can define terms later, but basically what a DAO actually is just um organization without a traditional hierarchy it's usually 
just people who want to work on similar things and are incentivized by sharing um, ownership in this specific organization. We can talk about computers later. But basically, there is a DAO now for YC alumni. And huh. I, I chatted with a, a couple of those folks, and they briefed me on what happened the last two years. Because as I said, I was super into crypto before, and uh, like did a couple of things back then, but haven't really focused on it too much other than just like looking at the like Ether and Bitcoin price every now and then and reading a couple of things about it. But yeah, so that that brought me back into the into the game, as I would call it. And then I spent basically since then, like lots of my free time just playing around with everything. And it's it's a lot of fun. Like I'm more of a uh, I, I don't know how the how deep we should go should go into it, but like that, that's basically the status quo. And I'm I'm very, very bullish that this time it can actually really have an impact because the last two times I was super excited about crypto. I think it wasn't really ready for like mass adoption or anything close to mass adoption. But what I've seen now and the sophistication and the ease of use compared to back then is 10x better. It's still not that easy. And I think non-technical people will struggle with it, especially when it comes to not just like buying crypto on an exchange, right? But when it comes to minting your NFT with a with your own wallet or like like swapping um like ethereum to like a layer two right mm -hmm. like most people don't even know what i'm talking about right now i would assume but like it has a lot of complexity to it and it's not that easy but it's one of these things that can empower lots of people not only in the monetary sense but then also in a more participatory sense and yeah i would love to have a like really big deep dive into the topic in one of our next episodes but for now let's just do a like a high level overview but that's basically my my own crypto background. I'm very long. I've been very interested in it academically and intellectually for a long time. And that that has continued to this day. Awesome. Um, no, good, good to hear that. And of course, I mean, we don't give any financial advisors a lot of risk to it as well, investing into crypto and any kind of other. Um, YOLO all your money into Shiba. <laughs> yeah, that worked well, actually. No, don't. don't. Uh, yeah, again, no financial advice, uh, just a joke. <laughs> um, no, but good point. Shiba has been like crazy, right? So I mean, yeah, um, there are a couple of uh, <laughs> some like, somehow advices, but we don't want to give them here. Um, like what I think is quite interesting, as I as I, I, have, first... I have great advice. I have great advice. You know, all your money into the next Shiba. That's that's very that that would be very good financial advice. Mm. Yeah, definitely smart. I mean, like hopefully uh, we we can give some real time advice as soon as we have some some interesting things that you look upon. Um, yeah, but then we have to be careful about publishing this in the US because the SEC isn't happy with people. Even A16Z, like in front of, uh, like uh, before every one of the episodes, always, this is not investment advice. Please, blah, 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 blah. So, yeah, um, as we mentioned twice already, no investment advice. We're just joking. We have no idea what's going on. But if you continue listening, maybe you like get some ideas and can do your own research. Yes, absolutely. And I mean, like conceptually, there's a lot of other kind of interesting thoughts about it. One thing that I kind of got inspired by is um, the uh, like the advancement and benefits for creators. So if you think about how creators are incentivized today, whether it's music artists or podcasters or people that are um, kind of famous on Instagram and other channels, they are basically only incentivized by ads or by companies supporting them on their journey, but they're not initially supported by 
the technical kind of applications such as Spotify, Facebook, Instagram, and others, they basically just give them a platform to reach their users, but they they don't necessarily um, give them money. If you kind of, of course, one I think one outlier is YouTube that pays their um, pays kind of creators on their platform. But I think what's going to be interesting looking at the Web three world is that you might not have access to such a big community of followers, but you have like a few hundred fans that really like you and that kind of want to support you. And they can kind of basically invest into through um, kind of no middleman or no kind of um, software that's sitting in between that takes some revenue share or anything else. And I think that's going to be very interesting. And I think I didn't really like dig deeper um, into what these companies are kind of looking at. But if you think about um, what besides Facebook, there are not a lot of companies talking about the metaverse and like the Web3 world uh, besides Facebook. Of course, that's their mission. And Zuckerberg wants to build this, but like anybody, like nobody else from like big tech has has been speaking about that so openly and so intensively. So of course, they also see some risk that they might lose their kind of shares in the middle between creators and 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 the audience. And I think that's like an interesting dimension that I haven't really seen before. Um, that I, I find quite interesting. Of course, also for creators like you and me, like now recording stuff, right, and other kind of artists that are making music and and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I, like for me personally, I think the whole DeFi decentralized finance part of it is just insanely interesting mm-hmm. because it just opens up so many new products if you don't have a bank or a financial intermediary in between. Yeah. And again, like in the deep dive, we can go like much, much deeper and just explain everything. But basically how I how I think about it is just if you can have code execute almost anything you want and you have a trust layer on top of that then sky's the limit right you can you can help people all over the world you can build financial products for them extremely easily and you can find ways how people even in countries that don't have access to like the good financial markets of the us or like other western countries can still participate in those markets directly or indirectly because it doesn't really matter where you're like where you are when you have your wallet address right you can literally do it from anywhere and it like it doesn't matter where you're from and it doesn't matter what your background is you can have access to the same opportunities which i find very empowering and very interesting yeah and then also on top of it i like the pseudonymity that comes with it so <laughs> i i do <laughs> I no, I just I'm just a really big fan of it. And the, the reasoning behind that is just that it it creates more equality, if you think about it. Because if you have like a nickname or like a wallet address and like something that's linked to like an online identity, and maybe even like a profile picture that you're using, which is an NFT, just because everyone's doing that right now. But let's just assume that you have that and people don't actually know who you are behind that internet identity that makes it so much easier for underprivileged uh, like groups to participate because no one looks at your gender no one looks at your like skin color or like whatever stupid reason some people use to discriminate people right so it's literally just you can build this online image of yourself that completely detaches you from the biological features that were given to you at birth which are sometimes used for discrimination right so 
I just think that's super, super empowering. And I don't see like, there are some people who speak about that very, very openly, but I, I think that's often missed. And I think this is one of the strongest features of a future economy potentially, because then hiring discrimination would get like much, much worse. The discrimination of actually distributing capital would get much worse. There's literally like tokens out there that were created by teenagers, like sitting in their like, I don't know, like childhood bedrooms or whatever. No one knows their real name. They, you just know their pseudonym. And you don't care about who they are because they just build like a really dope product, which is pretty cool. Yeah, I agree. I mean, like the 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 pseudonymity that you touch upon is like, especially yeah, if you talk about like equality and and also um, kind of bridging the the gap between kind of poor and 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 rich can also be potentially minimized. We can dig into that a bit more also later um, in another kind of session if we want to dig a bit deeper what it means economically. Um, but what I mean, there, there, and 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 it's just a, like a, a normal transition, I think, right? I think um, Naval also talked about this when, and I didn't really think about that perspective as well. That kind of, if you look at previous generations, they always had kind of their own structure on how they want to live life and how they want to make money. If you like, the previous generation has invested in Bitcoin and like Ethereum and kind of others, and now like Gen Z comes across and they want to use different forms of economics to to make money and to kind of deliver ownership and um so it's not just kind of the the discrimination part that you just touched upon but it's also a a potential like new way to to start a, a new perspective on how the economy works and how it's going to be distributed uh, between different stakeholders um and today it's of course very much driven by uh, larger organizations that kind of control the system in in a bit so i think that's that's also very interesting and, and i talked to a guy uh, today actually and he, he said like imagine like patents that are owned by big health companies um, can be basically distributed by to the to the people and not just owned by larger health companies that are prioritizing or deprioritizing certain patents based on their potential revenue that they can make with a specific patent. But the patent is actually owned by the by the society, and the society decides what like the the, the patent when they should be released and how they should be functioning and how they should be spin off into technical products. So I think that's very interesting that I kind of didn't see as well before. So yeah, there's lots of kind of very cool thoughts about it, I think. Yeah, did you did you see the like the DAO that wanted to buy the US constitution? No. <laughs> uh, there was a there was a group that like tried to raise money to buy the US constitution because there was a copy for sale last week actually. And they raised over $40 million for that, like the equivalent of $40 million. But ultimately, they lost to like a rich hedge fund manager. But it was a really cool project because like the idea of like random people coming together and like buying this piece of art and then putting it in a museum. It's yeah, like there's lots of interesting stuff happening. So why don't we just make, okay, I, I have an idea, like live, live, live on the show right now. Uh, why don't we have a Web3 section from now on, like every single week? And just talk about some news, define some terms, and just make sure that people who listen to this can get a, a better understanding of A, what's going on in the Web3 world, and B, how it actually works. And then in between, we will do some deep dives. I already have some great ideas for some guests that we can get on the podcast, and then we can combine those. Awesome. Yes. And if you kind of any of the listeners, uh, I love that idea, Mike, good, good one. Um, and if any of the listeners know people that work in that space or 
um, kind of have digged a bit deeper from whether it's academics or the business point of view or technically even, um, feel free to reach out to Mike or myself on LinkedIn or any other channel and give us a heads up. And we would love to bring these people on board and talk a bit about kind of what happens. Um, and of course, that's not just on Web3, right? So of course, if you know other people that we should look into, uh, let us know. But hey, awesome. I mean, this has been a great chat. Um, and, and kind of we talked a bit about this now from a high level perspective, going to dig deeper. Any kind of books, uh, Mike, that you want to recommend before we, we head off? Not necessarily books, but I can put one or two of my favorite Web3 like entry level articles that I've already sent to a couple of my friends. We can put that into the show notes. So it might be interesting. Yes, please. Yep. That would be. We have great. a book. Um, yes, I have one book actually, which I can can mention. Um, it's if like for other product folks out there, um, definitely read "Continuous Discovery" by Teresa Torres. Probably lots of you have already read Marty Kagan's books, which are definitely a must read uh, for any person working in startups, I believe. Um, but uh, Teresa Torres writes a great book about how you actually do great discovery, which is still a lot of, like a, a big struggle for, I think, lots of product teams and, and um, definitely good read. I can definitely recommend it to everyone. have also shared this a couple of times. gives you a bit of more structure on how to do proper product discovery, which is essential. So uh, yeah, that's basically it, I think, for my set. Nice. Then, as always, uh, it was a pleasure talking to you. Likewise. I'm looking forward to the next time and hope you have a good rest of your day. Likewise. See you, Mike. Bye-bye.